Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome to our program. Tom Hartman here with you. There's so much going on we're going to get into today. There's kind of a two-part story here that I want to share with you having to do with this Wuhan virus and what kind of impact it might have if China essentially shuts down a lot of their manufacturing, as has already happened in the Wuhan area. We don't know how much of the manufacturing done in Wuhan is manufacturing that ends up here as opposed to manufacturing that just is done for internal domestic use. And I'm guessing it's probably more the latter than the former because Wuhan is interior. And a lot of the manufacturing that's used by American companies are along the coast where the stuff that's made can be easily transported to the seacoast, put on ships and, and shipped to the United States or to Europe or whatever it may be. But, but uh, if there is a worldwide slowdown because supply chains are damaged or interrupted, then, you know, we could have a serious recession here in the United States. And it could happen, you know, it could start in a few months. And if that happens, and if particularly if it gets severe, if it starts to get almost like 2008 or it triggers something like 2008, I think it's useful to take a look into the Wayback Machine and see what has happened in the past when there have been economic downturns. Now, obviously, there is a lot of pain associated with an economic downturn, and we don't want to minimize that. Nobody's wishing for an economic downturn because of the pain that they caused. But there were a series of financial panics in the 1770s that led to the American Revolution, many would argue. There was a serious panic in 1856. In fact, Abraham Lincoln had just been paid by a railroad for some work he did. I tell this story in Unequal Protection. And he had just taken the money out of the bank the day before the panic of 1856 hit. And it was the only reason he didn't get wiped out, because the bank went under. All, most of the banks in America uh, went under in the Great Panic of 1856, and that helped exacerbate tensions that led to the Civil War. So panics can have, you know, panics can produce war. And then, of course, you know, the Great Depression, uh, many people argue that the the Great Depression was a, a large factor in World War II. And these were Great Depressions that happened 80 years apart, roughly. 80 years from the 1770s to the, to the 1850s, 80 years from the 1850s, more or less, to the 1930s, um, 80 years, more or less, from the 1830s until now. I mean, it's been 90 years, but you get the point. Um, so we may be due for one. But looking at smaller hits, in 1880. Now, I'm I'm doing this from memory, so I may be off on it by a year or three on some of these. But my recollection is in 1883, there was a serious recession. And what came out of that was a demand for an income tax to control the income of the very wealthy speculators and bankers, particularly in New York, who were widely blamed for that recession. And Congress actually passed an income tax. And my recollection is it was 1885 or 86. 
Now, again, I might be off for by, a, by a year or three, but the, the story still stands. So Congress passed an income tax. Now, there had been an income tax passed by Abraham Lincoln as an emergency tax during the Civil War. And uh, that was passed in 1861. That tax was more or less repealed in 1868. And then by an act of Congress, and I think it was 1873, they officially repealed it. But they had stopped collecting it by that point. And so the income tax, you know, it was basically a war tax and everybody knew that. Well, the one in 18, 1883 or 84 was actually a specific income tax to tax the rich. And the rich fought back aggressively. They took this to the Supreme Court and within a year and a half, they got the Supreme Court in, as I recall, 1887, to declare that the income tax was unconstitutional. I might even be off by 10 years. This might be the 1890s. But in any case, it was right around that time. This is all before 1900. So then you had the, the you know, there was another panic in 1896. And that produced the modern, or the 20th century, kicked off the 20th century progressive era and led right to the presidency of Teddy Roosevelt, who took over when McKinley was assassinated in 1901. He was McKinley's vice president. And uh, he was a progressive Republican, and he passed, you know, the first estate taxes, so the wealth taxes. And that then led to, I believe it's the 13th Amendment, or the 16th Amendment, whatever it was, the, the amendment that authorized the income tax in 1913. It was the 16th Amendment in 1913, if I'm remembering correctly. Again, I'm doing all this off the top of my head. My apologies if I have individual dates just a little off, but I'm trying to tell a larger story here, a larger narrative. And the income tax initially only affected the top one-tenth of one percent. You had to make the equivalent of millions of dollars a year in today's dollars in order to pay any income tax at all back then. And that then, when World War I happened, that tax went up and it went from only hitting the top one percent or less to hitting about the top six or seven percent at the peak of World War I. And then after World War I, it went back down again in the Roaring Twenties. In 1920, Warren Harding ran for president on a platform of doing away with or reducing the, the income tax, and he did. He, he chopped the income tax from 91% down to 25% and, uh, you know, and, the, and the thresholds and everything. And so it was no longer affecting the moderately rich or the very well-off. It was just affecting the super-rich. And even the super-rich had dialed back its impact on them. And then, of course, 1932, Franklin Roosevelt was elected. And in order to pay for the New Deal to get us out of the Great Depression and ultimately to pay for World War II as well, FDR jacked that income tax back up to 90% and, and changed the tax tables so that it started hitting a lot of people. So my, the, the reason I'm telling you this story is that in almost every case, when you look at really substantial progressive reforms, they have followed a national crisis, and typically that national crisis is economic. Now, you could say the same thing of Lyndon Johnson's reforms in the 1960s. The national crisis that they followed was the assassination of John Kennedy. I doubt John Kennedy could have gotten Medicare passed, Medicaid passed, and, uh, you know, and, and maintained a high tax rate like Lyndon Johnson did, LBJ actually dropped the 90% rate down to 74%, but he expanded the, uh, uh, the, the rules for enforcement. Essentially, at 74%, the federal government was collecting more taxes than they were at 90% because LBJ had actually expanded the tax base. Now, you know, <laughs> Reagan lied and said, oh, it's because you drop tax rates, income goes, you know, the tax revenues go up. Not, not true. But my point, again, is that when there's an economic crisis, it's an opportunity, historically has been, and, and you can go all the way back to 1770 and see these cycles of this. It is an opportunity in the United States. And, and by the way, we've seen the same thing in the United Kingdom. And I don't, you know, I'm guessing other countries as well. I just, I've only studied these two countries. It's an opportunity for progressive change. I mean, just remember, you know, the Great Depression hit the United States and Germany at the same time in the same way and hit us both about equally as bad. 
We had FDR as our president. Germany had Hitler as their chancellor. And look at the very different direction these two countries went in response to an economic crisis. So if we have an economic crisis and Trump is president, I'm very concerned. On the other hand, if we have an economic crisis and Sanders or Warren are president, I think it could be a tremendous opportunity for the United States. And you see this Democratic Majority for Israel group right now that is running these uh, attack ads against Bernie Sanders in Iowa with the $700,000 ad buy. Congressman uh, Pocan was telling us earlier, you know, a bunch of prominent Democrats, Paul Begala is on their board. You know, they're afraid. They're very, they're very concerned. The neoliberals are very concerned about a progressive president, and they're going to fight like crazy. But I think that if the Wuhan virus produces an economic slowdown, which has a knock-on effect, because our economy is not back together. You know, I get these calls from SiriusXM listeners in particular who've been listening to the right-wing channels on there, and then they tune over to Progress, and they call me up and go, oh, you know, what about, you know, Trump is giving us all these jobs, and the economy's doing so well. The economy is growing. We just got the numbers from last year. The economy last year grew at 2.1%. Outside of the first year of the Obama presidency, which was when he inherited the screaming disaster from the Republican crash that George Bush caused, the average growth throughout the next seven years of Obama's presidency was 2.4%. Trump has not met Obama's growth numbers. So basically, you know, the Obama recovery is continuing, although it's getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And I would submit to you that the only reason that the economy is even functioning is because the Fed has been pouring money in. And I think this whole repo market thing, and we talked with Richard Wolf about this a couple times. I've ranted about it on this program at some length. I think these are all symptoms of a serious crisis in our economy, both a macro and a microeconomic crisis in our economy that, that should inform us all that the days of our economy are numbered. So bottom line here, Looking at this historical context, think opportunity. Think, what do we do if there's a crash? Now, you know, in the 1930s, Democrats called it the Republican Great Depression. The entire country eventually called it that right up until the 1950s. How about the Republican Great Crash? Picking up some of your phone calls, Mike in Seattle. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? Hey, picking up on your pandemic concern. I was listening to one of the local BBC channels from England, mm -hmm. and in the news, what they said is, do not go to the surgery, do not go to the hospital. If you think you have something, contact us, and we will come to you and take care of you, you know, whatever you need. That seems like a much better approach, and I don't think that this country could handle that at this point. Oh, no, we don't have, you know, we have no national health care infrastructure. I, I remember 10, 15 years ago, I was giving a speech at King's College outside of London, and uh, we were staying with a family. We were staying with some friends of ours, and we had our youngest daughter with us. Oh, Jesus, must have been more like 15 long ago, anyway, because she was still a teenager. And she had a really bad ear infection, and I got back from the speech, and it was 11 o'clock at night. We called the local surgery, the local doctor's office kind of thing, the emergency care or whatever, and uh, told him what was going on. And, and the doctor said, oh, fine, I'll be over there in just a few minutes. And he literally came over to the house and checked her out and gave her some antibiotics. He had them in his doctor bag. I mean, this, this is a, you know, a, a feature of British healthcare system. And so they're saying, don't come to the hospital, don't spread your possibly contagious disease. What, particularly if you think you may have Wuhan virus or is this just general flu advice? It was definitely about the new epidemic. I yeah. think. Okay. Just a concern about so it. So if you think that you're carrying this thing, don't come here. We'll come to you. Can you imagine? I mean, we literally don't have systems for that here in the United States, and they do in other countries. It's just incredible. Thank you for the call, Mike. That's a, that's fascinating. John in, West, in Westchester, New York. Hey, John, what's up? Well, I'm very concerned about the uh, national health care, and I have children, and I'm concerned about 
the discrimination, the economic discrimination that's starting. I'm concerned because, unfortunately, the jobs are going to start disappearing. And unfortunately, there the, you uh, yeah, well, I'm a skilled laborer. I'm a skilled union worker. Mm-hmm. And I can see my job being phased out within 20 years. I have apprentices coming in at 20-something years old. And I fear for them because their jobs are going to be eliminated. Mm-hmm. Now, when you do this, you're going to have two-thirds, I guess. It would be about two-thirds of the population will be phased out due to either technology, innovation, robotics. And unfortunately, the discrimination, economic discrimination, is just going to become larger and larger. Right. Let me just put this in a historical context. Prior to 1965, prior to Medicare and Medicaid, we had nothing. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the, you, know you, you, you threw yourself on the mercy of the hospital or your neighbors. In fact, it wasn't until the 1980s that Reagan actually signed off on a law that hospitals have to take people in emergency rooms even if they don't have insurance. They used to turn people away from emergency rooms who were brought in from, like, car accidents and things. No, sorry, we won't see you. I know, but now it's a small percentage of people. Well, It's a much smaller percentage that. now, but, it's, but you're right. We're moving in the wrong direction. And that's why well, I think we, we need a we, national health care system. Well, I think it's more than that. I think you have to feed these people also, and you have to, yes. there, there has to be a 20-year plan. I mean, they really have to look you. down the line 20 years. I am absolutely with you. Andrew Yang talks about this. Uh, I think more of the candidates need to be talking about this, the impact of automation, the impact of offshoring, the impact of the changes in the job market, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, there's a lot going on. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Imagine this Valentine's Day story is you. You're parked outside the restaurant where you're meeting your date in 10 minutes. Glancing in the mirror, you notice those wrinkles and large under-eye bags. You rummage through your bag thinking, where's my secret weapon? And there it is, Plexiderm. You apply the clear serum under your eyes and boom, two minutes later, you start seeing the under-eye bags and wrinkles disappearing right in front of your eyes. You will look years younger. Plexiderm is the clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. It's the Valentine's Day gift you give yourself. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and enter Voices for 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. Again, enter Voices at TryPlexiderm.com to get 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee, so to get my special discount, enter Voices at TryPlexiderm.com. That's Voices at TryPlexiderm.com. Cambridge University, researchers at Cambridge University just just did a study. It's actually a study that's been going on for 25 years. They just published the results. 154 countries from 1995 to 2020, 4 million people. Over the last 25 years, and the question that they asked was, are you satisfied with how your democracy is working? the democracy of your country. Are you satisfied with that? And what we found is that of these 4 million people, that dissatisfaction with democracy worldwide hit a peak. 57% say they're unsatisfied with their democracy. Now, these, this is U.S., Australia, U.K., and Brazil are at the worst right now. Back in 1995, 75% of Americans said they were happy with their democracy. Now, 57% of Americans say they're unhappy with their democracy. What has happened since 1995? Reaganomics. The Supreme Court turned our elections, our electoral process, our political process over to the big corporations. And people know it. You know, when Donald Trump was running for president, he said, you know, it's rigged. The whole thing is rigged. The economy's rigged. The politics is rigged. It's all rigged. And people were going, yeah, I know. They wouldn't have said that in the 80s and early 90s. Now, the rigging started in 1981. But, you know, it takes 10, 20 years for those kind of, you know, it's like the giant ship at sea, you know, with a little tiny trim tab. It takes a lot of years for those changes to become apparent to the average person. 
It takes, in some cases, decades for the good jobs to just all go away and be replaced by all the crappy jobs. You know, for an economy to kind of roll over like, a, you know, levels of the ocean seawater rolling over. That takes time. Today, fewer than 50% of Americans are content with our democracy. 75% were happy in 1995. This, again, presents us with an opportunity. All we have to do is say to Americans, as Donald Trump did in 2016, the game is rigged. You know the game is rigged. So let's pick some politicians who are not beholden to the people who are rigging the game, who are not beholden to the big corporations, who are not beholden to the billionaire class, who are not sucking up to the corporations and the billionaire class, who are not, you know, doing the things that, that perpetuate that system, but rather are talking about, you know, to paraphrase Thomas Paine, let us create the world anew. Let us create a new and progressive country. I think there's tremendous opportunity here. I, and I see this, again, as one of the, one of the positives, frankly. One of the things that, that can help us move forward. So we were talking earlier about, you know, what does conservative mean anymore? And I would expand that even to ask the question, what does Republican mean anymore? Increasingly, I've been arguing that it means we're in the pockets of big corporations or billionaires who themselves have interests in big corporations, period, full stop. We'll bring along a few racists and we'll bring along a few fundamentalists and we'll bring along a few anti-abortion activists to get enough votes to have political power. But basically what we're all in it for is the money. David in San Francisco. Hey, David, thanks for listening to AM 910. What's up? Um, you're certainly familiar with the old Lawrence. expression, pump and dump, you know, about pumping and dumping a stock. Yep. Uh, the, the stock market swindlers use that. For listeners that have never heard it before, basically some con artists will latch onto a stock and they'll praise it and praise it and praise it, and then they'll create a whole bunch of interest, and people will buy that stock and puff up the price. Well, the con artist, by that time, they sell it real quick, and then it falls to its natural level, and there are a bunch of people who lose a lot of money. So when you start looking at Trump and his organized crime crew, he's got Wilbur Ross, who's putting together American statistics. He's Secretary of Commerce. And if the Trump economy is booming and, and whiz-bang, it's probably because of numbers that Wilbur Ross has put together. Steve Mnuchin over in Treasury, too, he's famous for cooking books. Wilbur Ross, of course, if you look in Wikipedia, he's listed as the king of bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. And he's famous for puffing up a situation enough so that he can swoop in like a vulture when it crashes. Yeah, Forbes magazine and, called him a grifter. Right. I've got an old book about the old building in New York City called the Dakota, where John Lennon lived. Mm -hmm. And Wilbur Ross was the treasurer of the Dakota. And even back in 1979, when that book was written, Wilbur Ross was looked at with disdain. He was considered a kind of a con artist from across town. And the idea that he's He's our commerce secretary, and we're allowing statistics of American reputation to be put to him. Well, so, David, I, I so is the essence of what you're saying here that you think that the low unemployment numbers and the high workforce participation numbers are, are purely cooked books? Because what I'm seeing is a, a couple of factors that actually could account for a 3.5% unemployment rate. Number one, the workforce participation rate right now is about 3%, as I recall. It was like 67 or something like that 10 years ago. What I see is the generation of baby boomers are aging out of the workforce. And that was a huge generation, particularly compared to the generation immediately behind it. And so that would contribute to less unemployment because there's more jobs available because people are leaving those, number one. Number two, you've got, I think, 17 states now that have raised just in the last two or three years that have raised the minimum wage. And in every single case, when you raise the minimum wage, you are, that is the single most effective stimulus to an economy that can exist. And then number three, 
You've got the Federal Reserve, as a result of Jay Powell being constantly berated and harangued by Donald Trump, in part. You've got the Federal Reserve keeping interest rates artificially low and pouring trillions of dollars indirectly into the economy through the banks. But the low interest rates are causing people to put debt on their credit cards, to buy houses, to, to engage in a lot of behaviors, uh, stocking up on debt principally, but broadly speaking, engage in a lot of behaviors that they wouldn't be doing if interest rates were at the traditional, you know, four, five, six percent. Yeah, I think if you pull out those three structural supports, you know, Trump's thing kind of falls apart. But I don't think that it's inexplicable. Well, I'm not saying it's inexplicable. I mean, you gave three good categories where they could doctor the books. For example, you mentioned the baby boom is for retiring. Right. Well, hypothetically, the baby boom need more medical assistance. So that's more jobs. Well, that was my point. injured soldier, there's eight nurses. But are they low-paid home health care jobs? The other factor, you know, you gave three. The fourth is hyperinflation. And, you know, I've been mentioning this on some other shows. If you look at the baby boom, 1968 pretty much they got into the workforce and the minimum wage kicks in in February of 1968 at $1.60. Well, if you look at the price of gold right then, it was $32 an ounce. And so it would take you 22 hours to buy an ounce of gold at minimum wage. So if you took today's ounce of gold and divided it by 22, you'd get probably close to 70 bucks an hour. Yeah, so but, but you, you know, you can't you can't use gold, David, because, you know, Nixon took us off the gold standard in 72 and, and that five it, years later, you know, yeah, it was artificially low right then. You know, if you inflation adjust the minimum wage, it comes out to something like 18 or 20 dollars an hour right now. You know, I, I get it. Your point is you still don't it. you don't you still don't trust the statistics. I, I've got to move along and let you know, we've got a bunch of callers stacked up here. I want to get them in. But your points are fascinating. And, and I would love to see any evidence that you might have that Wilbur Ross is cooking the books. If you can find any, please tweet it to me. OK, David. Anyhow, David, thanks a lot for the call. Andrew in Oklahoma City. Hey, Andrew, what's up? There's been so much today that I'm just like going, okay, where do I go with this? But when you were talking about the unemployment, I also wanted to remind everybody, Bush is doing executive orders behind the scenes that are forcing a lot of people that are on government assistance off of it. And even if they can't really work due to this situation or that situation, they're having to go out. They're either going to be on the street or starving. Yeah, and it's not just Trump. You're also seeing this on a state-by-state basis in the Republican states, particularly with regard to Medicare or Medicaid, rather. Oh, 100%. I'm in Oklahoma. Trump is doing it with food stamps. uh, Yeah. Yeah, a billion billion dollars in tax cuts for the richest state, and they took a billion dollars out of education for it. There you go. Um, But actually, what I really wanted you to comment on is I just kind of get this feeling. Now, we we know that a a fair amount of Congress, I'd say 99 percent, is kind of on the dole from the business class. And we also know both parties. I don't think it's 99 percent. I think it's I think it's about uh, probably two thirds of the House and and uh, 90 percent of the Senate. Well, okay, but I mean, the only way you could say that is if you know for a fact they're all people funded and not taking corporate money. Well, I can say 90 percent of the Senate because I know that, you know, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren are not taking corporate money. Uh, I believe that Sherrod Brown pretty much isn't there. I I think there's maybe a couple of other senators. And in the House, the Progressive Caucus is uh, what, 90 people, 95 people, something like that. And out of, okay. you know, out of 230 or no, uh, the entire house, 435. Um, so I guess that's not so half. basically three, <laughs> three or four percent in the Senate. And uh, but yeah. I mean, the, yeah. I think the reason I say that is because, you know, the a lot of these really great progressive bills that Nancy Pelosi is moving up to the Senate for Mitch to kill. Mm-hmm. My question is, where were some of these gems? You think about Obama coming into office, the first thing he does, he lets lets Bush walk on war crimes. And then he brings a lot of Goldman Sachs type people into his admin. And in my estimation, he delivered so little to the people, the working class felt like, Hey, we've got to throw a Hail Mary and vote. Well, you know, let's let's cut President Obama some slack. He only had a majority. He only had a filibuster proof Senate for 74 days. Uh, And and, uh, you know, he got a lot done during that 74 days, including Obamacare and a lot of other things. Andrew, thanks for the call. I'm just not 
not a fan of the a the circular firing squad or b of of picking on president obama he he was a spectacular president in many regards he he granted he wasn't a progressive but he was a good guy larry in gary indiana hey larry what's on your mind today speaking of books i read your revolution of 1800 and a good bit about jeffersonian views and the jeffersonians held legislative power most of the way for the first half of the century there i know they were anti-corporation and you know giving corporate power right. to organizations yet corporations multiplied geometrically during that period what do you what do you attribute that to capitalism <laughs> you know, yes, Jefferson Jefferson strongly argued to to Madison when they were putting the Constitution together that the, the, not only should there be a Bill of Rights, but that the Bill of Rights should include a ban on commercial monopolies and uh, or monopolies in commerce was the phrase that he used, and he repeated that in numerous letters where he was lobbying all these other people as they were writing the Constitution. He lost on that. Um, uh, he he also had this vision of America as an agricultural country, and not Hamilton. More of that. Yeah, and Hamilton's vision famously was as an industrial country. And so, you know, people, I think the old cliche is that, you know, we quote Jefferson about politics, but we live in Alexander Hamilton's country. And, you know, when Hamilton was Treasury, Treasury Secretary for George Washington and in 1791 uh, presented his 11-point uh, plan for basically the industrialization of America, and uh, Jefferson was the Secretary of State in that administration, um, it, it took, and, you know, by 1793, uh, I think at least 10 of Hamilton's 11 points had either been made into law or put into place with executive order. Certainly by 1800, it was all solidly in place and stayed there right up until, you know, we started taking apart, uh, you know, our trade policies in the, in the 1980s and, and early 1990s with things like NAFTA. That's how it mm. happened, Gary. <laughs> okay. Yeah, thank, right. thanks a lot for the call. Jerry in Gaylord, Michigan. Hey, Jerry, what's up? So I was wondering about the increase in minimum wage. Like our caller earlier, um, 81, mentioned that it was, I forgot, very low. And we keep going up and up on minimum wage. Well, actually, the federal but minimum wage is still $7.25. This is the longest period without an increase in the federal minimum wage in history. I agree with you, but won't it just raise prices? No, corporate, it doesn't. Uh, uh, corporate people no, say, Jerry, well, now they got more money, we can raise the price a little bit. No, it's not, and, that's not how it works, Jerry. Jerry. Jerry, stop for a minute. I challenge you, the minimum wage was put into place in the mid-1930s. I think it was 1935. It might have been 1936. And it, it, the minimum wage has been raised somewhere in the neighborhood of the high 20s or low 30s, like somewhere between 27 and 33 times since then. So you should be able to identify a year or a couple of years where the minimum wage went up and inflation went up. Seems like it would be fairly simple, right? I guarantee you, Jerry, if that had ever happened, every Republican in America would have that year memorized. They would be saying, you don't want to have happen what happened in 1963 because they raised the minimum wage by 3% and we saw inflation go up by 6%. It's never happened. What happens is that when you raise the minimum wage, it stimulates the economy but it doesn't increase prices, uh, period. It's, it's a complete canard. It's total BS. It's a, it's a Republican talking point, and there's nothing to back it up. That's what I thought made prices go up, no, increase no, the what, minimum wage. No, no, what makes prices go up is, number one, the average family in America right now is paying about $4,000 more than they need to in prices because of concentration of corporations, because of cartelization and monopolization of industries, particularly in air, in food, in, in air travel, things like that. These industries, uh, internet services, telephone services, all of these things are two or three times more expensive in the United States than they they are in most countries like in Europe where they allow competition. So that's the main thing that drives a jury. We'll be back. Hey, 
Hey, my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting, uh, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back, is arriving in bookstores on February 10th. More information is available at all fine bookstores. I cover how the heartbeat of democracy depends on the vote. This book goes into depth on the racist legacy of our vote and the unique struggles of African-Americans, women, and Native Americans. In part two, there's a deep dive into the economic royalist modern war on voting. And part three is the solution section, how to get out there and get active. I'm also on the road to the book tour for the hidden history of voting. Join me on Monday, February 17th in San Francisco at the, for the Berkeley Arts and Letters series on Wednesday, February 19th at Town Hall, Seattle. Sunday, February 23rd for the Blue State Ball in Minneapolis. Friday, February 28th at Powell's in Portland. And Sunday, March 1st, in Chicago. More information is available at TomHartman.com. This book is the third in the series after the hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment and the hidden history of the Supreme Court and the betrayal of America. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, can I just say about Medicaid and the block grants? Mm -hmm. That's what happened to the Republican plan that preceded Medicare back in 1960. For three years, we had a program called Elder Care. It was the Republican plan before, and it failed in three years because these were block grants to the states that were supposed to be spent on uh, medical care for the elderly, and the states spent all the money. Whoa. And the program, the program went broke in three years. Thank you for that, Paul. I'll have to do some research on that. I remember elder care, yeah. but I don't, I don't know anything about it at all, so I'll have to look it up. Thank you. Yeah, actually, the Medicare bill was written in 1957 by a Rhode Island Democratic Congressman Amy Forand, and it was just tabled until 1965 and because the Republicans wanted to do this block grant crap, and they finally went, made it through Congress in 1960, the year of the election. Supposedly, it was going to be a big boom for the uh, Republicans, but it actually went broke. Thank you. Well said on all points. Welcome back. Daryl in Lancaster, Wisconsin. Hey, Daryl, what's on your mind today? I think we're pretty close to the same age. When I opened my first savings account in 1957, they were paying, I believe, 5%. Now I'm lucky if I can get 1.5%. Right. Is, there, is there anything that we can do about that? Before Reagan, we could even write off our credit cards. Right. We took that away. Right. You know, it's so frustrating to keep my savings in an account and not draw anything. I don't have enough. I'm 72 years old and retired. I don't have enough to play with with the market. I'm scared to death of that. Right. So what do we do? I know I I have the same conundrum. It's it's like you know I'm 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 buying CDs you know from my credit union because gee I can get 1.8 percent. You know it's like if I tie it up for a year. Uh, but you can know, I what's, remind you of something? Yeah. Can I remind you of something? Sure. Mr. Hartman, back in 90, 96 and 97, you asked the question. You said, have you ever been out in your yard alone and asked the question, am I alone? That question changed my life. Hmm. Okay. My nearest, my nearest neighbor is a quarter mile away in any direction, and they're Mennonite. Mm -hmm. So listening to you coming home one winter night, it had to be after 11 o'clock. It wasn't on this channel. I believe it was WLS, I think. You you brought that up. So a couple of days later, I was out with the dogs, and I thought, okay, I'm going to ask this question. Am I alone? I didn't get an answer. But, boy, the feeling I, I've carried with me since that night. Wow, that's great, Daryl. That is great. Um, speaking of interest rates, what happened was in 2000, well, in 1999, Congress blew up the Glass-Steagall Act, which was put into place in 1933 to prevent banks, checkbook savings banks, what are called commercial banks, the banks where you have a checking account or a savings account, to prevent those kinds of banks from taking your and my checking account and savings accounts and gambling in the stock market with that money. They said, if you want to gamble in the stock market, if you want to be that kind of bank like Merrill Lynch used to be, um, that, which is called an investment bank, um, you cannot offer checkbooks and, sav and, and savings accounts. And if you're a checkbook savings bank and mortgage bank, you can't gamble in the stock market. You have to have them separate. And that was the law from 33, as I recall, right up until 1999. And then uh, with the, the Securities Modernization Act of 1999, they blew up Glass-Steagall, which set us up for another great crash because, you know, that's what caused the great crash in 1929. That great crash happened in 2008. But instead of fixing the system, 
instead of banning this kind of activity by these banks, instead what, what has happened, you know, what, what was done by the Bush administration, uh, by and large, when the crash happened, was they started pouring money into the giant banks and allowing them to reconsolidate. And so what, we're still in that crash. We are still in an economic crisis echoing from 2008. And what the Fed has been doing is driving down interest rates as a way of keeping economic activity going and keeping commercial activity going and keeping the banks profitable. And it, it's, it's like it's a Ponzi scheme, Daryl. And it's yeah. going it's gonna fall apart. But that's why interest rates are so low, is that's the only way they've been able to prevent the economy from completely crashing. And, and what they're doing is they're postponing the inevitable, and it's gonna get worse and worse every day that goes by. Daryl, it's so nice to hear from you. Thanks a lot for the call, and thanks for your kind words, and, uh, and thanks for listening to SiriusXM. Robert in New Boston, Michigan. Hey, Robert, what's on your mind today? The Social Security tax, which this year is caps at one thirty-seven seven hundred dollars mm-hmm. I'm more interested in possibly creating a, a no tax for maybe the first ten or 20000 and then maybe at one thirty-seven seven, you drop it for people that make more than that but the way it works now it's obviously a, a, a huge penalty for anybody that doesn't make that much money which is most of us right i mean i, I have a decent well-paying job and to get to 137 i'm looking at a thousand hours of overtime yeah well no your, your point is well taken it's a regressive tax uh, in fact it's even if it was a flat tax it would be you know like medicare tax and no matter how much you make you're still paying I think it's 2.6% or something for Medicare tax. But the uh, the Social Security tax, because there's a cap at 137000 and it goes up a little bit every year. Um, I know, and it goes is, up every year, which I don't understand either. It's like you keep punishing people. Well, you know what? what, what it, money. Yeah, it's, it's going. Your point is well taken, Robert. It's going up in order to accommodate uh, inflation, basically, or at least that's the theory. But the simple fact is that, you know, if you make $113,000 or less, you're going to pay the full load on Social Security between yourself and your employer. I think it's 12 point something percent. Uh, whereas if you make a million dollars, you're only paying Social Security taxes on that first 113000 and the other, you know, 870000 or whatever it is, 80000 90000 you're paying nothing on. And if you make a billion dollars, you know, your, your Social Security tax becomes like a fraction of 1%. And that's just wrong. And, and there, that's been pointed out by many people many times over the years and, and uh, spot on. I'm with you. Reginald in Houston, Texas. Hey, Reginald, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? That Second Amendment, if the, they, they had this rally that came out the, with the people that you talk about, the Second Amendment, and, it, and how it's disproportionate in other countries in Canada and Australia that you, you spoke of, and the word is you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Jesus say, put the sword up. That ain't the way to go. Peacekeepers, so forth. Now, if that is the case, and we got that Second Amendment, what if African Americans would have been out there similar to what they did in the 70s? Would the Second Amendment, would they have the same rights to those guns, or would they be considered as being terrorists? or uh, people who are committing an act of violence, or would that Second Amendment apply to all? Because I'm not in favor of any of the weapons. I'm a peace person, and I believe in uh, leaving those weapons to where they need to be in the same way with America has she doing across the world, the way we're doing here. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. What can we do as far as to uh, eliminate that? And what if African Americans would have been there the same way they deal with if, if, you, uh, if you commit a crime? Right. You know, if a child commit a crime that, that's white, they're bad. They're just a child doing bad things. If it's African Americans, they're criminal. Would that be the same way if we protest and have will be uh, will be handled the same way as, as a good American citizen? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, Huey Newton and and friends showed up at the state capitol in in California back in the late '60s, early '70s, with guns. And Ronald Reagan was out there talking to a group of kids, and he freaked out. And one week later, as I recall, maybe two weeks at the most, the stories in my book on guns, Reagan and the Republicans passed the Mumford Amendment, which banned open carry of guns in California for the first time. You know, and it was just, you know, half a dozen guys who did that. That said, I mean, you know, they were fearless, those guys. You know, the Black Panthers back in the day. 
we have become so militarized. I mean, we got these SWAT teams, we got this hyper military, we've got you know this, these these super hyperactive responses to black people, whether it's you know driving or working or picnicking or whatever it may be. Although I'm guessing that that was the case back then too. It just we didn't have cell phone cameras to document it. I think your point is well taken, Reginald. I would not be the one to recommend that black people show up, you know, do like they did in Richmond, Virginia last week, where, you know, 20, 20 some odd thousand, I think exclusively white men showed up with guns. I wouldn't be the one to call for that, and I'm not sure it would necessarily be a good strategy, but it would certainly reveal the hypocrisy of it. The danger for bloodshed, though, is just, is just terrible. Tom, you know, we're just coming off that they just passed this $737 billion arms war appropriation Pentagon budget. And Bernie Sanders and another state representative, U.S. congressman, said that they want to hold up passing that bill so that we can maybe put put the Medicare for all in there. It was going to try to negotiate before they did it. Control of the House and with all the Democrats' with accountability, they went and voted on that. They had a, a stipulation in that that would have kept them from going to Iran. And once they passed that bill, they gave them a green light to go to Iran. They could have you know, took one aircraft carrier. You could have took care of reparations. You could have took care of the Medicare for all. You could have subsidized housing. And you're cutting the food stamps while you're increasing the war spending budget, which uh, Eisenhower talked about the military-industrial complex, where are we holding ourselves accountable? We could have done something, Republicans and the Democrats, and I think sometimes it's just one part of two divisions because they all went for it because I think that they have, what did I know, they, they put all of these uh, defense-spending places that makes war-spending items these districts, so all of them vote for it. How come we didn't hold them accountable, and why they are not talking about the fact that they could have done something protesting and holding that war spending budget up? Yeah, I'm with you. You know what our defense budget was in 2000? What was it, Tom? Just for comparison, state again what it was this year. $737 billion. Okay. In 2000, it was $384 billion. And that's a shame. Yeah. And, and so in 2014, it was $502 billion. You know, uh, the congressman spoke last week on the fact that the $737 billion, and there was only eight Democrats who voted for that. I found that appalling and how, how things got configured in there in order to vote for social services. They tied it to the war spending budget for right. that to happen like that and for us not to be known about it. And the fact that I think we, they still could have stood up and, and kudos to him and Barbara Lee and those eight, and I'm still hurt because we had control of the Congress. And we yeah, talked about this. I, I, Reginald, I think it was the other way around. Uh, what the Democrats did was they attached some social spending bills to the military bill because they knew it was going to pass. There was no way they could stop it. And they wanted to, you know, get these things through, and there was no other way to get them through. Okay. Uh, but, yeah, it's still an absurd and obscene amount of money. I agree with you. Yeah, yeah, and for that to go, because then, you know, that gave them the go into Iran and uh, to do whatever they're doing in that space thing and yeah. so forth and so on. And tell them they have a, a line item in there that's $100 billion, I'm not mistaken. I but it's $100 billion, I believe, and for, uh, for wars that may happen. So, if they, you know, that's in that budget. So if that money's just sitting there, they'll go create a skirmish so that they can use the rest of that money. Yeah. You know, uh, so you talking about poverty. That's poverty when you're taking it from them. We, ha we got control of that. Why are we not holding ourselves accountable to make that thing, make that happen? I haven't heard none of us talk about it and get on the Democrats uh, for pushing that when they had control of the House. Yeah, well, the defense budget is like something that it, it's like a sacred cow for members of Congress because the defense contractors, multiple defense contractors have built plants in every single congressional district in the United States. So right. every member of Congress finds themselves under pressure from their district to not end up laying off 100 or 200 or 300 people who are going to get really upset and be out there in front of your office with picket signs. And then on top of that, you've got all these defense contractors lobbying like crazy. Half of our defense budget now goes to private for-profit corporations. And the part that goes to the Pentagon and the part that actually goes to fund things like the military, in many cases, a lot of that is going to private corporations because they're providing things like KP service now, which soldiers used to do. So I'm with you, Reginald. I think that the, you know our, our military spending is bloated, it's wasteful, and it's immoral. Reginald, thanks a lot for the call.
Deborah's home was stolen. Now, I don't mean thieves stole stuff. I mean scammers literally stole her home. The FBI calls title theft one of the fastest-growing white-collar crimes. And this story is why you need home title lock. Deborah says criminals found the title to our home online and filed fraudulent documents claiming they owned our home. Wait, it gets worse. Deborah goes on to say, I was evicted from my own home and 85 grand in equity, gone. Nobody believes you can get your home stolen this easily. This is why you need home title lock, because no insurance or bank protects your home from title theft. First things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if your home's title has been tampered with. You need to protect the legal title to your home so you don't end up like Deborah. Go to HomeTitleLock.com now for 60 risk-free days of protection. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. Bob in Westminster, Colorado. Hey, Bob, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Hey. Are you familiar with the financial asset federal mandate under Medicaid? You know oh, what Medicaid, about? yeah. They basically, if, if you uh, need to go into a nursing home or something like that, you basically have to bankrupt yourself first. And you have to do it two years before you start drawing that Medicaid or else you have to pay everything back. Is that what you're talking about? Probably, but there's another part of that. Okay. Okay, now I had this happen to my parents, my mother's sisters. Uh, my mother-in-law went in, my mother, my grandmother went into a nursing home in 1968 or 9. And, uh, but before the Medicaid law, the state could actually call in and assess the offspring to pay for some of that health care, some of that care. I think they and still can in many states. Remember that remove the federal mandate. That means that only the assets of the person in the nursing home can be affected. If they remove that, that would open up the states, the possibility of open up to be able to put liens on the property of the children and the offspring yeah. for persons in, on on wealth on, on Medicaid. So the thing of it is, that would be a financial disaster for the children of those people. Uh, and uh, Gingrich almost got that passed, uh, I think, in '92, and then um, you know Clinton vetoed that budget. But it would have removed that federal mandate to where the states could actually, like my mother, let's say, went into a nursing home and she was on Medicaid, they could they could file liens against me. Yeah, no, I know. Uh, my brothers and I went through this when my mom was dying of Alzheimer's. You know, I get it. I, the, the solution, I think we're way beyond trying to fix Medicaid. What we need to do is have a single-payer health care system that covers absolutely everybody in the country, period, full stop, including nursing homes and everything else. And, the, and then this, this whole argument becomes moot. Thanks for the call. Steve in Everett, Washington. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind? Yeah, hi. I just have a question. Wouldn't it make sense if Republicans are using the Santa Claus theory to work in their favor? Shouldn't the Democrats bring it up in debate? And, you mean, and, should Democrats be yelling about the deficit right now? Well, sure. I mean, yeah. Yeah, obviously, it's just rising and rising. And that, yeah. hey, maybe we, if we take an unprivatized health care, we could offset some of the tax breaks are given to all the millionaires. Yeah. Well, I'm guessing that the reason the Democrats aren't yelling louder about the deficit, and there are some who are, you know, Michael Bennett, for example, the guy who's running for president, the quote, conservative Democrats are yelling about the deficit. But generally speaking, the whole deficit argument, it goes back to Pete Peterson and his buddies. Pete has passed away now, but he became a billionaire on Wall Street. And then he started leading, he started this thing called the Peterson Institute, which keeps track every year of how much the debt is and, and how much of that debt is on you and your children, which is just a nonsense phrase, right? It's, it's just nonsense. Nobody's ever been presented with a bill for the national debt. And in fact, the national debt was much higher than it is right now after World War II and after World War I. It just, you know, you can resolve the national debt by stimulus programs, which actually involve a little more debt spending. And I think most Democrats understand this, but the Republicans push this and they push it so hard because what they're trying to do is use the fear of the debt as an excuse to cut Social Security, cut Medicare, cut long-term unemployment insurance, cut Medicaid, cut education budgets, and say, you know, we can't afford these things, right? This is what, this has been, uh, Grover, there's just right. been no, no shortage of Republicans, actually. You know, this has been their thing, right? They're running around going, oh, I can't afford anything. And I, I think that most Democrats don't want to feed that. And that's why they haven't been giving it oxygen. Tony and uh, Payalup. 
Washington. Hey, Tony, what's up? Oh, hi. Several things. First of all, boy, I just can't get over your show. I just totally, totally worship your show. Well, thank you. Yeah, I love it. I'm in love with your brain, too. Anyway, in the 60s, I was a college student in the San Francisco area, psych major. I think I may have told you this a long time ago. I'm not sure. Doing a volunteer work at a mental hospital. Mm-hmm. And that's when our dear Reagan was governor, and he shut the hospital down and put all the patients out on the street. Right, and that was the beginning of homelessness in America. That was the beginning of homeless in America. Yeah, I was right there when it happened. Wow. And then I wanted to, oh, it, when Trump won, when he, the day he, when I, he won the election, I cried. I was, I cried. <laughs> I was just absolutely in tears. You're not alone. And a few days later, yeah, and a few days later, I was in a restaurant and there was a Frenchman there, a French family there. And I turned to them and I said, you know, I'm very embarrassed what happened in this country. And I want you to know that many, many, many of us, uh, millions of us do not agree with what happened. And they said, yeah, I know, we know, you know, because I was, I was embarrassed to be an American at that point. And then another question I wanted to ask you, why did Clinton and Obama pull back not try to change things back in the proper direction when they were, I mean, I know Obama had no, uh, the Congress and the Senate were both. Yeah, Obama had 74 days when he had a filibuster-proof Congress, and I'm not sure what the uh, proportions were with Clinton. I know he had a couple of years where he could get stuff done, but Bill Clinton had, uh, you know, in 92, as a result of Larry Summers and Alan Greenspan sitting him down and having a nice long talk with him a few weeks before he was inaugurated, basically mm-hmm. went from being an FDR Democrat with his New Covenant speech on which he campaigned in 92 to being, uh, you know, a neoliberal, an Eisenhower yeah. Republican, let's say. And, you know, he sold us out in many regards. Clinton did some good stuff, you know, and, and having Robert Reich yeah. at the top of the Labor Department was, you know, very much the top of that list. And Clinton had some really good people in offices. His uh, EPA administrator was a good person. His uh, Department of Labor, I just mentioned, great person. But he subscribed to neoliberal economic policy, to Reaganism, and, and sustained it and maintained it and, and famously said, you know, we've, we've ended welfare as we know it. And, uh, and he did. And, uh, you know, the, which is fine when, you're, when the country's in a boom. And the country was in a boom during the Clinton years. It was the dot-com boom. But when you're in a recession, if you limit welfare payments to five years, which is what Clinton did, you know, sometimes recessions last more than five years. I mean, we've been in a recession, arguably. Yeah. You know, the stock market isn't, but the, but American people are, you know, since 2007, 2008. So, so that's what happened. Tony, thank you for the call. Oh, welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Ben in Hood River, Oregon. Hey, Ben, what's on your mind today? Getting out the vote is important. It's our duty as Americans. But what good is going to the polls when the field of candidates is effectively chosen by the wealthiest Americans and corporations. And how do we make voting matter and curtail the power of the wealthy? Yeah, we have a huge uh, hill know, to climb here. Yeah, we have a huge hill to climb here, and, and thank you for, for raising the issue. And that is that, in and I write about this in my book, the, the Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. In 1976 and 1978, the Supreme Court ruled that corporations and billionaires owning politicians, and then more recently in the McCutcheon decision, owning even hundreds of politicians, is not corruption or bribery, which is what it was from 1787 or 1789 right up to 1976. It's not corruption and bribery, it's First Amendment protected free speech. And as a consequence of that, we've got billions of dollars being spent. In fact, probably the uh, Democratic primary is going to be a billion dollar primary, maybe more. And the general election this year is probably going to be a six billion dollar election. And also the 1976 decision, the Buckley decision, legalized individual billionaires paying for their own campaigns. So you've got Bloomberg and Steyer out there not taking a penny from anybody. Well, I guess Steyer is so that he can get into the debates. But, but basically, they're, they're just pouring money in, into the whole process. So the challenge then, or the question is, how do you take that on? How do we undo that? And I think that four years ago, Bernie Sanders showed us that it can be done. 
I mean, he won, what, 23 states, I think, in the primary against Hillary Clinton. It was substantial. And won, in some cases, by huge margins. And he didn't take any corporate money. So it can be done. I mean, you know, the, the question is whether it can be done at scale, whether it can be done you know, as running for president. And I'm guessing that the ultimate presidential candidate, whether it's Sanders or Warren, or, or if it is Sanders or Warren, let me, let me rephrase that, and they try to run a campaign saying we're not going to take corporate money, they're going to have to allow super PACs to campaign on their behalf. And actually, they can't stop them. Because, you know, I mean, this is, the, this is the air we breathe. This is the, 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 the water that we swim in if we were fish because of the Supreme Court. And what it's going to take is electing enough progressives at the local level, in fact, even smaller than that, electing enough progressives or getting enough progressives into the Democratic Party to be precinct committee people, and then have them nominating progressives in primaries and then having, you know, mobilizing progressive voters in the primaries to select progressives and then having those progressives run for office and be supported by all of us. And, and I mean, we've got to seize some power here so that we can then begin the process of deconstructing this, this uh, bribery-driven corporate state that the Supreme Court has given to us, period. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Tom Hartman Cruise will be sailing in July of 2020. The seven-day Oceana Cruise will be going to Bermuda, and I'll be hosting onboard events about the topics of the day. More info at TomHartman.com or 800-856-1155.